4. Army had a skirmish with the van of the pursuers, yet Green was so alert and skillful that he escaped every danger and saved his army. In this trying campaign valuable aid was given by partisans in the South. These were private companies, not part of the regular army. Such companies had been formed in the South by both sides, and that is why they were called partisans. Marion, the Swamp Fox, perhaps the most noted partisan leader was Francis Marion, of South Carolina. He was born in Georgetown, South Carolina, in 1732, and was therefore the same age as Washington. Although as a child he was very frail, he became strong as he grew older. As a man he was short and slight of frame, but strong and hardy in constitution. When the British began to swarm into South Carolina, Marion raised and drilled a company of neighbors and friends, known as Marion's Brigade. These men were without uniforms or tents, and they served without pay. They did not look much like soldiers on parade, but were among the bravest and best fighters of the Revolution. Their swords were beaten out of old mill saws at the country forge, and their bullets were made largely from pewter mugs and other pewter utensils. Their rations were very scant and simple. Marion, their leader, as a rule, ate hominy and potatoes and drank water flavored with a little vinegar. The story is told that one day a British officer came to the camp with a flag of truce. After the officers had talked, Marion, with his usual delicate courtesy, invited the visitor to dinner. We can imagine the Englishman's surprise when, on a log which made the camp table, there was served a dinner consisting only of roasted sweet potatoes passed on pieces of bark. The officer was still more amazed to learn that even potatoes were something of a luxury. Marion's brigade of farmers and hunters seldom numbered more than 70, and often less than 20, but with this very small force he annoyed the British beyond measure by rescuing prisoners, and by capturing supply trains and outposts. One day a scout brought in the report that a party of 90 British with 200 prisoners were on the march for Charleston, waiting for the darkness to conceal his movements. Marion with 30 men sallied out, swooped down upon the British camp, capturing the entire force and rescuing all the American prisoners. It was the custom of Marion's men, when hard pressed by a superior force, to scatter, each man looking out for himself. Often they would dash headlong into a dense, dark swamp to meet again at some place agreed upon, even while they were still in hiding, they would sometimes dart out just as suddenly as they had vanished, and surprise another squad of British which might be near at hand, Swamp Fox, was the name the British gave to Marion, with the aid of such partisan bands, and with skillful handling of his army, Green was more than a match for Cornwallis, he was not strong enough just yet for a pitched battle, but he kept Cornwallis chasing without losing his own army, that was about all he could hope to do for a while, but when he received recruits from Virginia, he thought it wise to strike a blow, even though he could not win a victory, turning, therefore, upon his enemy, he fought a battle at Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina March, 1781, he was defeated, but came off as well as he expected, and so crippled the British army that Cornwallis had to retreat, he went to the coast to get supplies for his half-starved men, like the Battle of Bunker Hill, it was a dearly bought victory for the British. Cornwallis now saw clearly that he could not hope longer for success in the South, and having taken on fresh supplies, he marched northward to try his luck at Yorktown, Virginia. Washington, with an army of French and American troops, was at the time in camp on the Hudson River, waiting for the coming of the French fleet to New York. That city was still in the hands of the British. As soon as this fleet should arrive, 
Washington expected to attack the British Army in New York by land, while the fleet attacked it by sea. But the French fleet was well on its way to the Chesapeake instead of to New York as expected. When this information came to Washington, he worked out a bold and brilliant scheme. It was to march his army as quickly and as secretly as possible to Yorktown, a distance of 400 miles. There joined the American army under Lafayette, and, combining with the French fleet on its arrival, capture the British under Cornwallis. This daring scheme succeeded so well that Cornwallis surrendered his entire army of 8,000 men on October 19, 1781. This important event, which practically ended the war, we shall speak of again. The surrender at Yorktown ended the fighting, although the Treaty of Peace was not signed until 1783. By that treaty the Americans won their independence from England, the country which they could now call their own extended from Canada to Florida, and from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. After the Treaty of Peace was signed, and the army disbanded, General Green went home. In 1785 he moved with his family to a plantation which the state of Georgia had given him. Here he lived in quiet and happiness, but only a short time, for he died of sunstroke at the age of 44. His comrade Anthony Wayne, voiced the feeling of his countrymen when he said, I have seen a great and good man die. Some things to think about 1. Tell what you can about General Green's early life. 2. What was the condition of his army when he took command in the South? How did he prove his strength at that time? 3. What kind of man was Daniel Morgan? And what do you think of him? 4. Tell all you can about Marion, the Swamp Fox, and his ways of making trouble for the British. 5. When did the revolution begin? When did it end? What did the Americans win by the treaty? What was the extent of our country at that time? Chapter VI John Paul Jones While the revolution was being fought out on the land, important battles were taking place also at sea. Until this war began, the Americans had had no need of a navy because the mother country had protected them. But when unfriendly feeling arose, Congress ordered war vessels to be built. These were very full in capturing British vessels, many of which were loaded with arms and ammunition intended for British soldiers. Powder, as you will remember, was sorely needed by Washington's army. Among the men who commanded the American war vessels were some noted sea captains, the most famous of whom was John Paul Jones. He was of Scottish birth. His father, John Paul, was a gardener, who lived on the southwestern coast of Scotland. The cottage in which our hero spent his early boyhood days stood near the beautiful bay called Solway Firth, which made a safe harbor for ships in time of storm. Here little John Paul heard many sailors tell thrilling stories of adventure at sea and in faraway lands. Here, also, to the inlets along the shore, the active lad and his playmates took their tiny boats and made believe they were sailors. John Paul always acting as captain, sometimes when he was tired and all alone. He would sit by the hour watching the big waves rolling in and dreaming perhaps of the day when he would become a great sea captain. When he was only twelve, he wished to begin his life as a real sailor. So his father apprenticed him to a merchant at Whitehaven who owned a vessel and traded in goods brought from other lands. Soon afterward John Paul went on a voyage to Virginia, where the vessel was to be loaded with tobacco. While there he visited an older brother, who owned a plantation at Fredericksburg. For six years John Paul remained with the Whitehaven merchant, and during this time he learned much about good seamanship. After the merchant failed in business, John Paul still continued to follow a seafaring life, and in a short time became a captain. But when his brother in Virginia died, 
John Paul went to Fredericksburg to manage the plantation his brother had left. It was now his intention to spend the rest of his life here, but, like Patrick Henry, he failed as a farmer. In fact, it would seem that he was born to be a sailor. In the meantime he had come to be a loyal American, and when the revolution broke out he determined to offer his services to Congress. When he did so, he changed his name to John Paul Jones. Just why? We do not know. Congress accepted his services by appointing him first lieutenant. He proved himself so able that in the second year of the war he was put in command of two vessels, with which he captured 16 prizes in six weeks. In the following year he was appointed captain of the Ranger and sent to France with letters to Benjamin Franklin, who was then American commissioner at the French court, trying to secure aid for the American cause. At that time English vessels were annoying American coasts by burning and destroying property. Jones got permission from Franklin to attack British coasts in the same way, and he was allowed to sail from France in his vessel with that purpose in view. His plan was to sail along the western coast of England and set fire to the large shipping yards at Whitehaven, with which harbor, you remember, he had become familiar in boyhood. He meant to burn all the 300 vessels lying at anchor there, although he succeeded in setting fire to only one large ship. He alarmed the people all along the coast. The warning was carried from town to town, beware of Paul Jones, the pirate, an English war vessel, the Drake, was sent out to capture the Ranger, as the Drake carried two more guns and a crew better drilled for fighting, it was thought she would make short work of the American ship in a fight, but it was just the other way, for after a battle of a single hour the English vessel surrendered, having lost many men, the American loss was only two men killed and six wounded. After this brilliant victory the young captain put back to France, there he found great rejoicing among the people, whose goodwill was more with America than with England, and as war had already broken out between France and England, the French king was quite willing to furnish Jones with a considerable naval force, a desperate sea duel accordingly. In August, 1779, Captain Jones put to sea once more, this time with a fleet of four vessels. He named his flagship Bonhomme Richard Bonamari Charter, after the Richard of Poor Richard's Almanac, which you will remember Benjamin Franklin had written, in this ship, which was old, he set out to cruise along the western coast of Ireland, in order to capture English merchant vessels, after reaching the southern point of Ireland, he cruised northward around Scotland and down its eastern coast, then he sailed up and down the eastern coast of England, looking for merchant vessels. At noon on the 23rd of September Jones sighted a fleet of 42 merchantmen, guarded by two English ships of war, all sailing from the north. He at once decided to make an attack. This took place early in the evening, the action being mainly between the Richard and the English man-of-war Serapis, which was a large ship, new and swift, and very much better than the Richard. During the first hour the American vessel got the worst of the fight and was leaking like a basket. The English captain feeling sure of victory, called out, has your ship struck, our hero, Paul Jones, shouted back, I have not yet begun to fight, as the British vessel came alongside his own for a more deadly struggle, Jones with his own hands lashed the two together, soon both were badly leaking, but the fighting went on as fiercely as ever, presently both caught fire, then Jones turned his cannon upon the mainmast of the Serapis, and when it threatened to fall the English captain surrendered, so after all it was the English ship and not the American that struck the flag, but the Richard could not have held out much longer, for even before the surrender she had begun to sink, 
When the English captain gave up his sword to John Paul Jones, he said, It is very hard to surrender to a man who has fought with a halter around his neck. You see, Captain Jones would have been hanged as a pirate, if taken. Jones replied, Sir, you have fought like a hero. I hope your kin will reward you. This was a desperate sea duel, and it lasted from half past seven in the evening until ten o'clock. It was important also in its results, for it won much needed respect for our flag and gave a wonderful uplift to the American cause. The victor, John Paul Jones, who was loaded with honors, from that day took rank with the great sea captains of the world. Some things to think about 1. Tell all you can about the early life of John Paul Jones. 2. Why did the English call him a pirate when he was sailing along the British coasts in order to destroy property? 3. What was the outcome of the desperate sea duel between the Bonhomme Richard and the Serapis? 4. What do you admire about John Paul Jones? 5. Do not fail to locate every event upon the map. Chapter VII Daniel Boone You remember that when the last French war began, in 1756, the English colonists lived almost entirely east of the Allegheny Mountains. If you will look at your map, you will see how small a part of our present great country they occupied. Even up to the beginning of the revolution the Americans had few settlers west of the Alleghenies, and had done very little there to make good their claims to a land. Yet at the close of the war we find that their western boundary line had been pushed back as far as the Mississippi River. How this was done we shall see if we turn our attention to those early hunters and backwoodsmen who did great service to our country as pioneers in opening up new lands. One of the most famous of these was Daniel Boone. He was born in Pennsylvania, and, like many of the heroes of the Revolution, he was born in the 30s, 1735, as a boy. Daniel liked to wander in the woods with musket and fishing rod, and was never so happy as when alone in the wild forest. The story is told that while a mere lad he wandered one day into the woods some distance from home and built himself a rough shelter of logs, where he would spend days at a time, with only his rifle for company, as he was a good shot. We may be sure he never went hungry for lack of food. The game which his rifle brought down he would cook over a pile of burning sticks. If you have done outdoor camp cooking, you can almost taste its woodland flavor. Then at night as he lay under the starlit sky on a bed of leaves, with the skin of a wild animal for covering, a prince might have envied his dreamless slumber. This free, wildlife made him thoroughly at home in the forests, and trained him for the work he was to do later as a fearless hunter and woodsman. When Daniel was about 13 years old his father removed to North Carolina and settled on the Yapkin River. There the boy grew to manhood. After his marriage, at 20, he built himself a hut far out in the lonely forest, beyond the homes of the other settlers, but he was a restless man and looked with longing toward the rugged mountains on the west, along the foothills of their pioneer settlers and hunters had taken up their abode, and young Boone's imagination leaped to the country beyond the mountains, where the forest stretched for miles upon miles, no one knew how far, to the Mississippi River, it was an immense wilderness teeming with game, and he wanted to hunt and explore in it. He was 25 when he made the first long hunt we know about. At this time he went as far as what is now Boone's Creek, in eastern Tennessee. Other trips doubtless he made which increased his love for wandering, and in 1769, nine years after his first trip, having heard from a stray Indian of a wonderful hunting ground far to the west, he started out with this Indian and four other men to wander through the wilderness of Kentucky. For five weeks these bold hunters threaded their way through lonely and pathless mountain forests, 
facing many dangers from wild beasts and Indians. Boone goes to Kentucky but when, in June, they reached the bluegrass region of Kentucky, a beautiful land of stretching prairies, lofty forests, and running streams, they felt well repaid for all the hardships of their long journey. It was indeed as the Indian had said, alive with game, buffaloes, wolves, bears, elk, deer, and wild beasts of many kinds abounded, making truly a hunter's paradise. They at once put up a log shelter, and for six months they hunted to their heart's content. Then one day two of the party, Boone himself and a man named Stuart, while off on a hunting expedition, were captured by an Indian band. For several days the dusky warriors carefully guarded the two white captives, but on the seventh night, having eaten giaridly of game they had killed during the day, they fell into a sound sleep. Then Boone, who had been watching for this chance, arose quietly from his place among the sleeping Indians and gently wakened Stuart. The two crept stealthily away until out of hearing of the Indians, when, rising to their feet, they bounded off like deer through the dark woods to their own camp, but they found no one there, for the rest of the party had fled back home. However, Boone and Stuart stayed on, and some weeks later they were pleasantly surprised when Daniel's brother, Squire Boone, also a woodsman, unexpectedly arrived with another man and joined the camp. The four were quite contented, living and hunting together, until one day Stuart was shot by an Indian and killed. His death so frightened the man who had come over the mountains with Squire Boone, that the woods lost their charm for the poor fellow and he went back home. So only the two brothers were left. They remained together three months longer in a little cabin in the forest. Then, as their powder and lead were getting low, Squire Boone returned to North Carolina for a fresh supply, leaving his brother to hold the hunting ground. Now Boone was left all alone. His life was continually in danger from the Indians. For fear of being surprised, he dared not sleep in camp, but hid himself at night in the cane break or thick underbrush, not even kindling a fire lest he should attract the Indians. During these weeks of waiting for his brother, he led a very lonely life. In all that time he did not speak to a single human being, nor had he even a dog, cat, or horse for company, without salt, sugar, or flour. His sole food was the game he shot or caught in traps. How gladly he must have welcomed his brother, who returned at the end of two months, bringing the needed supplies. Other hunters also came from time to time, and Boone joined one party of them for a while. After two years of his life in the woods he returned to his home on the Yapkin to bring out his wife and children. By September, 1773, he had sold his farm and was ready with his family to go and settle in Kentucky. He had praised the new land so much that many others wished to go with him. So when he started there were, besides his wife and children, five families and forty men driving their horses and cattle before them. This group was the first to attempt settlement far out in the wilderness, away from the other settlers, but while still on its way, the little company was set upon by a band of Indians near a narrow and difficult pass in the mountains. Six men were killed, among them Boone's eldest son, and the cattle were scattered. This misfortune brought such gloom upon the party that all turned back for a time to a settlement on the Clinch River. But Daniel Boone was one of those who would not give up. He said of himself that he was ordained of God to settle the wilderness, and in the end he carried out his unflinching purpose to make his home in the beautiful Kentucky region. This region had already become well known by report east of the mountains. The Indians called it a dark and bloody ground, for, as an old chief told Boone, many tribes hunted and fought there and the Indians had roamed over it for hundreds of years. 
but none of the tribes really owned the land, so it was not possible to buy any part of it outright. Yet, to avoid strife, a friend of Boone's, Richard Henderson, and a few others made treaties with the most powerful tribe, the Cherokees, who said that they might settle there, as soon as it became certain that the Indians would not make trouble. Henderson sent Boone, in charge of 30 men, to open a pathway from the Holston River through Cumberland Gap to the Kentucky River. With their axes the men chopped out a path through the dense undergrowth and cane breaks broad enough for a pack horse. You will be interested to know that this bridle path was the beginning of the famous Wilderness Road, as it is still called. Later the narrow trail was widened into a highway for wagons, and it was along this way, rightly called a Wilderness Road that in later years so many thousand settlers led their pack trains over the mountains into Kentucky and Tennessee. But that is taking a long look ahead. Just now we are thinking about the very first of these settlers, Daniel Boone and his company, the Kentucky settlers at P-O-N-E-S-B-O-R-O-U-G-H when they reached the Kentucky River. Boone and his followers built a fort on the left bank of the stream and called it Boonesboro. Its four walls consisted in part of the outer sides of log cabins, and in part of a stockade some twelve feet high, made by setting deep into the ground stout posts with blunt tops. In all the cabins there were loopholes through which to shoot, and at each corner of the fort stood a loophole blockhouse. There were also two strong wooden gates on opposite sides of the fort. After the fort was built, Boone went back to the Clinch River and brought on his wife and children. When they settled, it was springtime, and Kentucky was at its best. Trees were in leaf. The beautiful dogwood was in flower and the woods were fragrant with the blossoms of May. Do you wonder that they loved their new home? At first the cattle and horses were always driven into the fort at night. Later, however, every settler had a cabin in his own clearing, where he lived with his family and took care of his own stock. But even then in time of great danger all went to the fort, driving their animals inside its walls. This fort, with the outlying cabins, made the first permanent settlement in Kentucky. Boone was a man you would have liked to know. Even the Indians admired him. He was tall and slender, with muscles of iron, and so healthy and strong that he could endure great hardship. Though quiet and serious, his courage never shrank in the face of danger, and men believed in him because he believed in himself, while at the same time his kind heart and tender sympathy won him lasting friendships. These vigorous and sterling qualities commanded respect everywhere. As a rule he wore the Indian garb of fur cap fringed hunting shirt, moccasins and leggings, all made from the skins of wild animals he had taken. This dress best sweet the wilderness life. Of course, this life in a new country would not be without its exciting adventures. One day, some months after Boone's family had come to Boonesboro, Boone's daughter, with two girlfriends, was on the river floating in a boat near the bank. Suddenly five Indians darted out of the woods, seized the three girls, and hurried away with them. In their flight the Indians observed the eldest of the girls breaking twigs and dropping them in their trail. They threatened to tomahawk her unless she stopped it. But, watching her chance, from time to time she tore off strips of her dress and dropped them as a clue for those she knew would come to rescue them. When the capture became known, Boone, accompanied by the three lovers of the captured maidens and four other men from the fort, started upon the trail and kept up the pursuit until, early on the second morning, they discovered the Indians sitting around a fire cooking breakfast. Suddenly the white men fired a volley, killing two of the Indians and frightening the others so badly that they beat a hasty retreat without harming the girls. Another exciting experience, which nearly caused the settlement to lose its leader, 
came about through the settlers' need of salt. We can get salt so easily that it is hard to imagine the difficulty which those settlers, living far back from the ocean, had in obtaining this necessary part of their food. They had to go to salt lakes, as they called the grounds about the salt water springs. The men would get the salt water from the springs and boil it until all the water evaporated and left the salt behind. Boone with 29 other men had gone, early in 1778, to the Blue Licks to make salt for the settlement. They were so successful that in a few weeks they were able to send back a load so large that it took three men to carry it. Hardly had they started, however, when the men remaining, including Boone, were surprised by 80 or 90 Indians, captured, and carried off to the English at Detroit. For we must not forget that all this time, while we have been following Boone's fortunes west of the Alleghenies, on the east side of those mountains the revolution was being fought, and the Indians west of the Alleghenies were fighting on the English side. They received a sum of money for handing over to the English at Detroit any Americans they might capture, and that is why the Indians took Boone and his companions to that place. But, strangely enough, the Indians decided not to give Boone up, although the English, realizing that he was a prize, offered $500 for him. The Indians admired him because he was a mighty hunter, and they liked him because he was cheerful, so they adopted him into the tribe and took him to their home. Boone remained with them two months, making the best of the life he had to lead, but when he overheard the Indians planning to make an attack upon Boanisburo, he made up his mind to escape if possible and give his friends warning. His own words tell the brave story in a simple way, on the 16th of June, before sunrise. I departed in the most secret manner, and arrived in Boanisburo on the 20th, after a journey of 160 miles, during which I had but one meal. He could not get any food, for he dared not use his gun or build a fire for fear his foes might find out where he was. He reached the fort in safety, and was of great service in beating off the attacking party. This is only one of the many narrow escapes of this fearless backwoodsman. Another incident illustrates his quick wit. One day, while he was in a shed looking after some tobacco, four Indians with loaded guns appeared at the door. They said, Now, Boone, we got you. You no get away anymore. You no cheat us anymore. While they were speaking Boone had gathered up in his arms a number of dry tobacco leaves, rubbing them to dust. He suddenly flung it into the faces of the Indians, filling their eyes and nostrils. Then, while they were coughing, sneezing, and rubbing their eyes, he escaped. These are but a few of Boone's dangerous adventures. From them all he came out safe and for years continued to be the able leader of the settlers at Boanisburo. There he remained until after Kentucky was admitted as a state into the Union 1791. Four years later he moved still farther west, led on by love for the wild, lonely life of the forest, a life which never lost its charm for him, even down to his last days. He died in 1820, 85 years old his long life covering a period of very great change in the growth of our country. By that time we had become a nation with broadly expanded boundaries. It has been said that but for Daniel Boone the settlement of Kentucky could not have been made for several years. However this may be, we know that he was one of those fearless and daring men whose courage helped to establish that part of our country long known as the West. Some things to think about 1. What kind of boyhood had Daniel Boone? 2. Imagine yourself to have been in his place during the weeks when he was alone in the Kentucky forests, give an account of what happened. 3. Tell about his second capture by the Indians and his escape. Why did they admire him? 4. What did he do for Kentucky?
What kind of man was he? Chapter the III James Robertson Another pioneer who lived in Boone's day was James Robertson. Like Boone, he came from North Carolina, and he led the way for the settling of Tennessee very much as Boone did for Kentucky. The story of those days shows that he was one of the most forceful and successful of the early English pioneers who led out settlements west of the Alleghenies. Born in 1742, Robertson was ten years younger than Washington, but this boy's early life was very different from young George Washington's, for little James was born in a backwoods cabin, and his father and mother were too poor to send him to school, so he grew up to manhood without being able to read and write, but he wanted to study and was persevering and brave enough to learn the letters of the alphabet and how to spell and to write after he had grown to manhood. We can be sure, therefore, that James was the right sort of boy, and that he would have mastered books if he had been given the chance, just as he mastered the wilderness in later life. But it is as a backwoodsman that we first come to know Robertson and learn why he was trusted and followed so willingly. Although not tall, he was vigorous and robust, having fair complexion, dark hair, and honest blue eyes that met one's glance squarely, his frank, serious face, his quiet manner, and his coolness and daring in the midst of danger gave him a mastery over others such as it is given but few men to have, like Boone, he was noted as a successful hunter, but hunting and exploring were not with him the chief motives for going into the wilderness, he was first of all a pioneer settler who was seeking rich farming lands with nearby springs, where he could make a good home for his family and give his children advantages which he himself had never enjoyed. Led by this motive, he left his home in North Carolina to seek his fortune among the forest-clad mountains, whose summits he could see far away to the west, with no companion but his horse and no protection but his rifle. He slowly and patiently made his way through the trackless woods, crossing mountain range after mountain range, until he came to the region where the rivers flowing westward had their beginning. Much to his surprise, he found here on the Watauga River some settlers from Virginia, who gave him a kindly welcome. He stayed long enough to plant a crop of corn and see it grow up and ripen. Then, late in the autumn, having decided that this was a good place for his family, he started back home. H. 